Well, if you have your copy of God's Word, I'm going to invite you to open up to Matthew chapter 6. This morning, we'll be looking at verses 9 through 13, known as the Lord's Prayer. Ironically, it is called the Lord's Prayer, but it is a prayer that our Lord would have never actually prayed himself. He would have been incapable of doing it and even admitting some of the things that come alongside in the prayer. Jesus does some remarkable things, as we talked about even last week, in how he addresses God and calls him the Father, which would have been something completely new and seemingly controversial at the time. Several weeks ago, uh, I went to the place where I go and get a haircut and stood in line for about 30 minutes next to another gentleman. And we began to talk. I asked him what he did, and it wasn't long that I just asked him, as I've gotten older, I've just sort of cut to the chase with people and just said, do you know the Lord? And uh, he said, "Uh, what do you mean by that? And I said, do you know the Lord? Do you have a relationship with Christ? And he looked at me and he paused and he said, no, he goes, I do not. And I gave up on that stuff a long time ago. And I said, well, tell me your story. And we sat there and we waited and I listened to him talk. And as we began deeper and deeper in the relationship, he began to identify what we talked about last week and what I spent this week counseling others after the service uh, last Sunday. That his issue was first and foremost an issue with God being Father. And he was a man that grew up in a broken and abusive home. And in his mind, he, he could not come to, to know and to trust God as Father because his earthly father had done some atrocious things to him and that was the roadblock in his path and place to faith. I know that there are perhaps some of you that are here today, just like last week, who didn't grow up with great dads or maybe you grew up in abusive homes emotionally and physically and even spiritually abusive homes. And can I say to you and echo the words of one of my favorite theologians, J.I. Packard, that the idea of God as Father is one of the most important and one of the most foundational truths that we as believers wrestle with and we grapple with. When I was saved at 17 years old, I was given two books by two dear friends. One was Through Gates of Splendor by Elizabeth Elliot, and I read it almost in two days. And the second one was a book by J.I. Packard just simply called Knowing God. One of the most important books in my life, still to this day, I read it uh, every few years, and Packer says this, the whole of the New Testament can be summarized as the revelation of the Father. If you want to judge how a person understands Christianity, find out what they think about being God's child and having God as Father. If this is not the prompt that controls your worship and your prayers, it means, dear friend, that perhaps you do not understand Christianity at all. Harsh words, direct words, from one of the more astute theologians in the past 20th century. The idea of understanding God as Father. Jesus comes to this place in the Sermon on the Mount where his disciples began to ask him the question, teach us, teacher, how we should pray and and how we should do it properly before the Lord so that we don't mess up and we don't become like the Pharisees who become legalistic in their tendencies. And and Father, that we do not act like the pagans who are riddled with anxiety and and stress and, and they cope with all the different things and all the different 
ways. And so Jesus begins to speak in verse 9, and he says, Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. The fatherhood of God is the beginning of our prayers. It echoes J.I. Packer's sentiment in understanding the fatherhood of God and how he is a good and kind and benevolent and gracious father to his children and to his people. But when Jesus begins to speak to his people and tells them, this is how you should pray, I want you to notice several things in the very beginning, just the first word there that exists, our. He doesn't command them to pray, to, to pray my Father who art in heaven, or even your Father who art in heaven, but rather our Father. And what Jesus is doing in this moment is he is reminding his people that we are not meant to walk in this life and with our faith by ourselves and alone, but rather we do it together, arm in arm. Every circle, every row, every name on a roster, every name on a Sunday school class in a small group, it matters because it matters to God. And Jesus in this moment is teaching his disciples that when we pray, that we remember the, the broader church, the brothers and sisters that sit beside us, the brothers and sisters in places like Haiti and around the world who are enduring persecution even in this very moment and in this very our, it is our faith collectively in this sense that there is no such thing as following Jesus all by yourself. It was never intended to be that way. It was never God's will, and certainly in the very beginning, as Jesus reminds his disciples how to pray, it is our Father, the fellowship of the saints, the koinonia, if you will, the assembling together, the called out ones, the gathered ones together, our Father speaking to God as Father. No Jew would have ever referred to God as Father in this moment. This was a title that was new, not just with Jesus. Jesus always used this when praying, but he was authorizing, if you will, the disciples in this moment to speak about their heavenly Father with a greater degree of, of intimacy that existed before. Our Father who, who is in heaven, this distinction that oftentimes our culture and churches that we, we miss this, that we miss this idea of him being creator and us being the created ones, this distinction between our Father who is in heaven, who sits enthroned above us and over us, yet he is intimately aware of where we are and our needs and, and our wants and desires and our thinking and our emotions. Our Father who is distinct from us, being here in heaven as we are here on earth being eternal as we were the ones who have been created and spoken into existence. Our God who is in heaven, hallowed be our name. He is dependent on nothing, yet we need him as his children for everything. We are dependent upon every breath that we take. We need him. And this father who is in heaven to have his name to be hallowed it simply just means this idea that we are seeing God as greater and more worthy than all other gifts that we could have received. It means that we distinguish him above everything that we would give and get in this life. 
above any person or persons, above any church or groups of people, above any material possession, above anything that we would receive, retirement accounts and 401ks and houses and cars and and even our very own children, that God is greater than all of those things and he is more worthy than even all of those things. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. And we see his worship there in that moment that he demands of his people, that he asks of his people, that he tells his people to look at me as distinct and, and separate. Though I am Emmanuel, I am with you, though I am set apart. In a day and age and a culture and churches and and communities all across this country and across the world which are seeking to bridge the gap and to make us like God in so many different ways, we would do well to be reminded this morning that we are not God and that we are separate from him. But here in this moment, Jesus reminds them of the worship that God demands of his people, that he asks of his people, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. But I want you to notice in verse 10, he transitions to his kingdom, where he says, your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. We live in the day and age that theologians call just simply the already but the not yet. We live in the in-between of times. The in-between in the, in the sense of the inauguration of the kingdom of God and the consummation of the kingdom that is yet to come. Understanding this reality that we still live in a, in a broken and a sinful world. Yet our aim and mission is to see people that are far from him come to know him because the kingdom has come, yet the perfect kingdom that is yet to come is still coming. And so we long and we pursue and we yearn for that day to be here, the already and the not yet. Jesus, in this moment, is reminding and he's teaching his children that we are to live as those who have experienced the the power of God and and the power of Christ here on this earth, yet we are those that are still longing for that kingdom to be completed, yet to become for all the sin, for all the injustice, to be made right. A day and age in which no one would dare come into any church, whether it be here in the United States or in countries like Haiti and kidnap 13 or 14 missionaries and hold them hostage. Yet this is what has been common throughout most of Christendom throughout the years. That God has grown his church and his people and spread his message and his word through the blood of those that loved him deeply. And it's the inauguration of God's earthly rule, but yet the rule that is yet to come to fully be completed. Friends, can I tell you this morning... And gently remind you as your pastor that God establishes his kingdom primarily through the cross of Jesus. And Jesus died and he suffered first and he commanded his disciples then at that death and after that death to then take up their cross and their suffering and to be like him. We live in a world in which we seek the the earthly and and the pleasures and the comfort of this world. But unlike the kings of this world, God establishes his 
kingdom. When we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done here on earth, just as it is in heaven, the path and the way forward in establishing that kingdom is a path of suffering and it is a path of hardship. It is a path of self-denial. It is a path of service to one another. It is a path of humility to one another. Bringing about God's kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven is the way of the cross as we follow Jesus and follow in his footsteps. Yet at the same time, we are not blindly sitting back and just waiting for things to happen and this, as if we would have this sense of, of fatalism that would exist. Well, his kingdom is going to come about one way or the other, and so I'll just sit on the sidelines and I'll watch as it comes and, and as it takes place. No, the response to the believer is, as we pray, our Father who are in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. That we are a part of, of building and, and laboring in that kingdom. We are bringing the bricks, we're bringing the lumber and the tools and, and we're working and, and we're yearning to see God's goodness here in our city and, and here around the world. Everywhere God sends us as his people, we want to see his kingdom come as we proclaim the gospel of Jesus to a world that desperately needs to hear him. To a world that in some ways has turned their backs on our king, turned their backs on our heavenly Father. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, I didn't say this in the beginning, but as we look at the Lord's Prayer, we must notice something that is instructive for us. Jesus is giving them this, uh, not uh, words necessarily to recite as a form of religion like the Pharisees would have done, but rather what he's doing is he's giving them this set of principles in which are to guide their prayers and to help them structure how it is that they would pray. And up until this point, almost halfway through the prayer, Jesus spends almost 50% of the time teaching his people how, first and foremost, in the midst of their prayers, to adore God, to heap praise upon him, to worship him in the midst of their prayers. Friend, I think the heart check in that moment for us, for me, even this week, was how many times this week as I came before the Lord did I just sit quietly before him and adore him and praise and adore him and worship before I ever asked any one single thing. Often we are quick to run to our immediate needs or even the immediate needs of the others when sometimes we just need to sit in his presence and hear from him and ask him to open up our hearts and to make our hearts tender towards the things that, that his heart is tender towards. That we would cultivate uh, good soil within our hearts, deep within our hearts, that we would see one another as God sees them, that we would speak to one another as God would have us speak, that we would care in our feelings and in our thoughts and in our actions, that we would just spend time sitting with our Father and praising Him for who He is. And we adore Him. We ask for His kingdom to come on this earth as it is in heaven. But then Jesus says that you would be mindful then to ask for provision in that moment in verse 11. He then says to give us this day our daily bread. This morning, can I say to you, 
that God and his kingdom must always, in every way, take priority over man and his needs. It's about his kingdom. It's about a posture of of self-denial before the Lord, that we would be mindful of those that are around us and be mindful of the things that God would intend for us to do and to be. God made us for his glory, and we can never be what we were intended to be apart from that glory. His perfection being put on display, his holiness on display for the world to see the glory of God seen and demonstrated in his children, in those that he has brought into his family and adopted and made co-heirs with Christ and and given us the keys to the the heavenly kingdoms to reign alongside him and, and with him and before him. God has made us to put that perfection on display for the world to see. Now, New Testament scholars in this moment sometimes would argue or contend that the word daily here does not mean today, but rather it means tomorrow. And some would contend that the argument here is not give us this day our daily bread, but but rather give us tomorrow what it is that we need to to go on with our lives, to survive and, and to thrive even at times. Not just food to eat but food that has been given from the author and the creator of tomorrow, the one who who resides there. He is the one that then gives us what it is that we need, the provision that we need tomorrow. One theologian said it this way, it's as if God is giving abundant life just a little bit at a time, giving it progressively, giving it just enough to sustain us, to to nourish us, to trust in him for our provision tomorrow. Give us this day. Give us tomorrow what it is that we need this daily bread. Friend, if we have all the food in the world, but we don't have Jesus, we will ultimately starve. But if we have all the food with Christ, then we shall have all that we ever need. But if we go and pursue the things of this world, the material things of this world, and we do it without Christ and for Christ and for his kingdom and in his name, then in the end, those things, they burn up and they become meaningless. There is no legacy to to pass on, if you will, that is not done for the things of his kingdom and for the glory of his name. Give us this day our daily bread. It's an understanding that the people of God understand the posture of generosity that God requires of his people. It's a posture that so many of you have have taken up and done so well to be generous, not just in your giving what you have done, but to be generous with your presence, to be generous in your time to one another, to to sit in your circle and to minister the gospel of 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 the glory of God, the word of God to one another, to care for one another in times of sickness and trouble and And in times of calamity, you're there and and you're with each other to practice that generosity of spirit. What you have, you have unleashed it on other people. What I have is yours. What, What is yours is mine. And we practice that place of of generosity. And we show our ability to be able to trust God by not withholding our presence with one another not just withholding what it is God has given us with and blessed us 
with. And, and we give it and we give it back to him because, friends, it's, it's his already, is it not? He owns it. It's his. Your time, it's his. Your talent, it's his. Your resources, they're really his. And oftentimes we hold on to those things and when God is saying to release those things, the Father's provision here in this moment, give us this day our daily bread, is this understanding that we continue to maintain this posture of generosity before him. But then Jesus goes on in verse 12 and he says to forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. It poses the question for us this morning is, does Jesus mean that our reception of forgiveness is determined by our granting of forgiveness? To forgive others as we too have been forgiven, it almost seems to intimate in that moment that, that our forgiveness before our Heavenly Father, it is absolutely conditional upon our willingness to forgive or not forgive someone else. And how we understand that question and how we answer that question is immensely important for us today. The answer to it, quite simply, is this. We do not receive forgiveness because we forgive others. But rather, we receive forgiveness solely and only because of the mercy of God in our lives. Because he is merciful. That even in the midst of our unforgiveness, he would still forgive us because he is merciful and he is kind and he is rich and he is full of compassion. Yet at the same time, we understand that those who, who understand that they have been richly forgiven know what it's like to walk through this life with seeds of bitterness and unforgiveness in our hearts. Being unwilling to forgive. That conversation I told you about earlier with that man, one of the conversations that we, or the, one of the ways that we went in that, in that discussion was he talked about how he would never be able to forgive his dad, ever, ever. You think about that. There's nothing that, that his dad could do for the rest of his life that would, that would allow that son to grant that father forgiveness. I don't know all the details and I don't know what all his father did to him or didn't do to him or what his side of the story was and, and what the son's side was. But the danger is there. When that seed of, of bitterness and unforgiveness, it stays in our hearts, it can linger and it can turn into something quite different, contempt and, and anger towards them. Whether it be justifiable or not, depending on what has happened in the midst of the conflict, but here in this moment, what we see is Jesus is saying that, that we practice a position of forgiveness because we know that we have rightly been forgiven. As I said to you before in previous weeks, forgiving others doesn't mean that you get to be a doormat to bad or abusive behavior of other people. It doesn't mean that you get to get whooped up on and, and beat up on and beat down on and, and you get to allow yourself to remain in a situation of some sort where you would continually and perpetually be the victim. That's not what forgiveness is, and that's not what it's talking about in this moment. But Jesus says we forgive as we have forgiven others. 
And then he says in verse 13, but would you lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Ironically, in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, we see Jesus being led out by the Spirit of God into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil himself. He was a man who was acquainted with temptation. A man who was acquainted with him being given the keys to the, to the kingdom, the keys of the world, to, to give everything that, that you and I would ever want this side of eternity. And yet Jesus in those moments, he, he rebukes the devil. He quotes scripture. He flees from the sin. And he lingers and he runs to the Father. When Jesus says to lead us not into temptation, but to deliver us from evil, it assumes that we as the people of God understand our own vulnerability to sin. It means that we understand our, our capability to sin, to live in it and to walk in it, to, to breathe in it, to even delight in it at times. That we understand that we are one choice, one decision, one thought away from, from being led by that temptation and not being vulnerable before God, but, but rather to be led away by the flesh because we still live in the already but the not yet. God's kingdom is not fully here this side of the cross. And so we understand that we suffer and that we sin. And Jesus in this moment is just simply saying this, to, to pray that, that I would not even be led into temptation. That I wouldn't even be tempted to be tempted, if you will. But that God in his mercy and in his kindness would deliver us from all evil, from all temptation. This past week I was doing some reading on one of our famous missionaries in Southern Baptist life a lady whom many of you are, are deeply acquainted with, Lottie Moon. And Lottie Moon has one of my favorite quotes of her. She makes this statement. She was a missionary in China, and we take up an offering uh, for her every year, and uh, we'll be doing that again come this December. But Lottie Moon says this. She says, only believe, don't fear. Our master, Jesus, always watches over us, and no matter the persecution, Jesus will overcome it. It says a lady who spent 30-plus-some-odd years as a missionary overseas in China, never married, faithfully serving, faithfully giving her time and her talent and, and all of her resources for the glory of God to, to preach and proclaim, to teach the message of Jesus to anyone that would listen to her, and would heed what she had to say. I think there are perhaps some of you here this morning or watching online or have yet to come that maybe you're caught up in a, in a position of, of fear. Maybe you're caught up in the midst of, of temptation, of, of struggle here in this moment. And as I remind you of the words of, of Scripture here, but also the words of Lottie Moon, Jesus will overcome it because Jesus has already overcome it for you and on your behalf. He has already defeated sin and, and death, and he has already defeated evil. And the posture of the Christian this morning is simply to call upon his name, for there is no other name that is worthy of our affection. There is no other name worthy to be sung about and be prayed to and to be listened 
to and thought of. He is the name above all other names. And friend, I'll end this morning by asking you this question. Just as Jesus radically and revolutionary began to, to call God the Father, is there, is there some of you here this morning that your view of your Father needs to change? That you need to stop seeing your heavenly Father through the lens of your earthly Father or through your husband or how they were and what they were not? Maybe for some of you here this morning, you've not done a great job of, of, of hallowing his name and putting his perfection on display for the world to see as treating Jesus as your greatest treasure in this life, not just in the one to come. But maybe, maybe your way of application this morning is found in that first word, just in the beginning of the prayer, our. Our. Maybe you've forgotten this morning that the idea of walking and following Christ, it is not a solo act meant to be done by yourself but it is meant to be done alongside other people. Knowing that you being there matters, not just for your own sake and, and for your own well-being, but, but who you would invest in as you come and who you would serve as you come and as you go and as God sends you out into this city. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Pray with me. Father, we ask that in the name of, of Christ that you would help us be faithful to your mission. Father, that this church would be used not to build its own name and reputation, not to build its own kingdom, but rather to build your reputation, to build your kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. And so, Father, I pray that this morning you would, you would help us see that. You would help guide us and lead us by your Holy Spirit. Father, you'd help us be on mission today. And I pray, Father, that you would remind us this morning that you are rich in compassion. You are full of mercy and kindness. You are slow to anger. And so, Father, I pray that this week that we would make much of that truth as we seek to exalt your name here in this city. For we ask and we pray these things in the name of Christ and God's people said.